Well, hey, Chris. Howdy. How are you? I am good. How are you? Did you get a good breakfast? Yeah, I'm all set. I like those shoes. Are they new? No. No. I guess I don't look new. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a weird question. Um, I will have to say this episode, we're a little light on content, which is rare for us. Normally, I feel like we're trying to get all of our thoughts in. This was supposed to be our big listener mail episode mm-hmm. where we would open a mailbag uh, and, and respond to comments and questions and thoughts that people had. But as you may know, Chris, we got nothing. Didn't really hear from anybody. So here we are. Maybe it's a testament to how uh, comprehensive we are that we have covered all the bases and nobody has any questions. I hope that's it. The worst part is we don't even have a spinoff to cover because the globe we were using to choose spinoffs let us down so badly. We destroyed the heck out of that globe. Right. But now we're not sure how to how to pick a spinoff. I kind of wish we had kept the globe. Well, I mean, that would be one thing. I mean, I, I don't know if some kind of new system is what we need. I don't really know what we're going to do about it because we are already recording the podcast and we have no idea what we're... Who can that be? I swear nobody comes around to this door. Hold on just a second. I'm going to check to see what that's about. Well, look at this. What is it? Look, I got a package. I don't know. It's oh. a box. I'm going to open it up. Who's it from? doesn't have a return address on it, but it is addressed to Saul Searching. So this is to us, not just me. Wow. Let's open it up and see what it is. Huh. Hmm. Now, what do you make of that? Some kind of a thing. Those of you that can't see this, this is basically kind of like a little metal box with a crank on the side. There's something else in here. Well, it's a note. Let's see if this solves the mystery for us of where our little whatever it is came from. It's kind of written in a scrawl here. It says, I heard your globe has left you flat. I guess that's wordplay. Yeah. Like a globe and flat. Not too shabby. I heard your globe has left you flat, but my new box is where it's at. (laughs) So before you give a scoff, turn the crank for your next spin off. <laughs> this is like something the Riddler would do. Is give a scoff even something that people say? Is that what it says before you... So before you give a scoff. Give a scoff. No, before you scoff would be the... No, yeah, that's just for to get the meter to sound right, I guess. I would say before you scoff. All right, I'm scratching this out. I'm rewriting this, Chris. Let's <laughs> workshop this. So before you... Fellows scoff. And so before you fellows scoff, or before you... Eh. So not a great poem, but it does give us instructions uh, about what to do with this box. I mean, that's cool if it's somehow going to suggest a spinoff. I just hope it doesn't blow up or something. It's a weird thing to do. It seems like a fan has dropped off this device with us with a... I'm going to call this a hastily written first draft of a poem, honestly. <laughs> that's pretty rough. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it's not easy to you know make something rhyme and have you know relevance to the thing i mean i guess let's turn the crank do you want to get to a safe distance if you're worried about it being something dangerous if you're gonna do it i'll i'll just stand back a couple feet here okay i'm gonna turn it all right just spit out a little card neat let's see what the card says your next spinoff is the lone gunman the lone gunman it's an x-files spinoff yeah i remember that i mean i remember i think it ran for like a season or half a season or something back in early aughts right i'm I'm honestly going to try to take this as a reprieve i was wondering how we were going to fill this episode and now we've got some content we've got to go watch the lone gunman pilot and then we can come back and talk about that and better call saul sure why not
Well, we are back. Hey. And we have watched not just the latest Better Call Saul episode on AMC, but we have watched the pilot episode of the X-Files spinoff, The Lone Gunman. And um, I gotta say, this little box... I think it's working out so far because this was a pretty clever choice, wouldn't you admit? That, uh, you know, not just is is The Lone Gunman appropriate for this show because it's a spinoff and therefore we can compare it to the spinoff that is Better Call Saul, but The Lone Gunman is a show that Vince Gilligan worked on. Right. Kind of co-created it. Yeah, so that's actually a pretty smart little uh, device, I guess. I got good feelings about this device. A, it didn't blow up and kill us. Right. B, it didn't release a noxious gas and kill us. Right. C... It didn't shoot blades out and kill us. D. I was a little worried because it did, you know, on site, it reminded me a little bit of that cube from uh, uh, Hellraiser, you know, that's always opening up and twisting around and doing crazy stuff. So uh, I, I definitely uh, was a little concerned, but it, it, yeah, it didn't do any of that. But a good choice because we actually got to do a little bit of a more linear comparison than we normally can do because not only is this a more modern show than any of the others we've looked at, but it also has a creative kinship of a sort with the content that we've been covering all along. So, so I, you know, I look forward to hashing out uh, our thoughts on The Lone Gunman after we talk about Better Call Saul. Okay. Let's get into Better Call Saul. Um, this episode is called Kushada. It was written by Gordon Smith, and it was directed by Jim McKay, a director who I don't think has worked on this show since the first season, but he too has a, a history with the show. So I will say after a run of, I believe it was... Four episodes written by women. We're back to a sausage party, but at least on this show, the sausage party in the writer's room is not the norm. You'd be surprised how many shows, if you look at that, how how badly they fail. Hmm. I think it's a huge part of why we get a great character like Kim, is because there are women writing her and influencing her decisions. And I, I have to believe that there is at least some kind of relationship between between those two things. Yeah, and maybe they're helping to ensure that she is... Uh, her own agent that she is driving the story somewhat. And certainly on this episode, uh, we get that. This is a point where we can look back at the the majority of a season and say that in many ways, as, as other seasons have been shared pretty evenly between Jimmy and Mike um, or Jimmy and Chuck, I think this season has been uh, Kim's season in a way, at least as much Kim's season as any season has been thus far. Yeah. So how did you feel about Kushada, just in the broad strokes? Uh, great. I've liked it a lot. You know, we saw a big caper, and that's my favorite thing. Anytime we, we get to uh, see Jimmy or Jimmy and Kim uh, pull off some fun shenanigans, uh, that's the coolest part of the show. All the stuff we love about this form of storytelling, the kind of slow reveal uh, of details that mount up to be this thing, you know, um, that is... That is at its best when it's a fun caper and you're about to find out what happens. Like, right. as good as that storytelling can be when you don't know what's happening or you don't get the full story, it can be beautiful to look at and, and evocative. But when you actually see the people doing the scam and how the scam works and how the phone calls feed into it. And what the result is. Like, it was satisfying dramatically and emotionally and character-wise, but it was also just a heck of a fun show. Uh, even if the fun is connected to a sense of dread. But I have a feeling we will get to that in good time. Let's start with, I don't know, Nacho. My general thought on Nacho's role last night was that this was uh, sort of a scene that if it had been in last week's episode, it would have been the scene that caught us up on what eight months have done for him. 
yeah, he's living in a, a super nice house and uh, with some druggy girls who hang around, and he really seems like he's on the top of a uh, drug dealer's game. Although I don't remember if we ever saw his personal residence in the past. Uh, I just always pictured that it was nothing swanky, uh, and he's hiding out at his dad's and so on, uh, but now he's got this fancy digs. I don't think we've seen him at home before. I don't think we've seen anything of his life outside of the upholstery shop, mm-hmm. the taqueria, where, where he does business for the Salamancas or has sat behind uh, while while others do business before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that... Um, you get a little window into who Nacho is as a guy, even if that place represented in some ways the choices that a guy in his position is expected to make, maybe more so than any kind of inner life of Nacho's. Mm-hmm. I, I have two thoughts that came out of that storyline last night, or there were two sort of lingering questions I had about Nacho. Um, and one of them was based on the the scenery he's in the restaurant and, and um, a Crazy 8, who is now doing... For Nacho, what Nacho used to do for Hector, right? Um, that that scene was nice. It illustrated once again that Crazy Eight is perhaps not as hard as as he needs to be for this world. But when Nacho ripped the guy's earring out, yeah, I had this question in my mind of like, am I just like, have I been deluding myself into thinking we like Nacho? Hmm. I've always liked Nacho, but do I just like him because? We are. We think we're supposed to, or or do we? You know, because he's compared to Tuco, or he's compared to Hector, or do we? Do we not like him because he's a violent thug in a lot of ways? You know, like what do you think about that? Do you, do you like Nacho? That's a good question of what we're supposed to make of him. Um, I like him because he is a handsome and charismatic actor, and he is a gangster who wants to get out of the game, and he wants his father to be safe. So you can root for him on that, but this is a big reminder, like, hmm, he is also a gangster who is ready to do gangster stuff, and that's why he's able to stay in there, but it also means that you're you're uh, liable to be gross and mean sometimes, or ruthless, and so then, yeah, you do have to ask yourself, wait a minute, do I, do I like him? Do we even know Nacho? Hmm. Last night we saw enough facets of this guy that that he's got these fake IDs for him and his father. Yeah, they're ready to go to Canada. That's very touching in a way to see that he's kept that as his real goal. So you think when he's ripping the thing out of the guy's ear, when he's coming into the house, maybe all these accoutrements of this drug dealer life is him trying to keep up appearances because he's trying to set himself up for the best possible departure. I just don't know. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting place to be with this character, but it was the first time I really kind of questioned my affection we don't see a lot of him the way he behaved when he was kind of the boss in the in the taqueria. Like that is a side of him that is clearly a performance, right? Right, it's a performance, but he's he's able to do it, and so that means that in effect he is a rough gangster. And so, yeah, what's the difference between um, being an evil and effective gangster so that you can eventually get out of the game and leave, and just being an evil and effective gangster? You know, you're still uh, hurting people. Well, what's the difference between being a uh, a, a restaurant 
owner and a pillar of the community and being a murderous drug lord? What's the difference between being a, a shyster lawyer who, uh, you know, pulls as many strings and bends the law as much as possible and a guy who's actually got a good heart? You know what I'm saying? Like maybe this, this world is full of these big personalities that we see our performances. And we see both sides of all of them, how they're able to be good and bad. It's clear that at the end of the episode, the fact that someone is now coming in to oversee Nacho, it either sort of screws up his immediate plan for getting out of town with his dad, or it sets in motion a situation where Nacho now realizes it's not going to be as easy to skip town because he's not sitting at the top if he's got someone who's been sent to either watch over his shoulder or help or whatever's going on there. But either way, we got introduced to a a new character who may not seem like a big introduction unless people are really detail-oriented. But if you've been following the mythology of this show, Lalo is uh, is the other piece of the the mystery, or at least the beginning of the solution to the mystery of of Saul's line to Walt and Jesse in that episode of Breaking Bad so long ago, where he says, um, "Did Lalo send you? It wasn't me. It was Ignacio." Right. When he was first introduced. So what did you think of that scene and and the character? And if anything, do you get a glimpse of maybe how he's going to be different from Hector, different from Gus, different from Nacho? Uh, I liked it. It was a good scene. It was uh, creepy to have the guy just come in and start cooking and be so self-confident and then go and sit down in the chair and take over in Nacho's place. And he's trying to be super friendly and nice. He's like, come on, let's sit down or something. But he's basically, you won't even know I'm here. But then he goes and sits right in the chair uh, as if to completely take over. And uh, it's kind of sort of a a clever, passive-aggressive type of gangster, I guess, who says, I'm your buddy. We're just pals hanging out and cooking for each other. Uh, But now I'm really the one who's making sure this operation is going to run right. And Nacho's reaction, we're seeing the back of his head, so you can't see his face, but it sure felt like somebody being replaced and watching their own downfall, even though we know Nacho wants to get out of the game. Well, we know he also is an effective gangster, and he must he can stand it. And in this instance, it makes me feel like he must kind of like it if he's burned by the fact that this guy is coming in and, and replacing him. This guy messes up the flow of control that not so much was gratifying Nacho's desire to be a gangster. But I'm not saying I don't think that he is enjoying perhaps this control. But I think that if he's got an escape plan, surely having someone there standing right at his side uh, or behind him looking over his shoulder, surely that messes up his plan. Right. You know? Possibly. Like, surely he, he, he's now not, he, he's got someone he's directly answerable to, or at least it seems like that. I mean, it was very unclear, but I guess in the next episode, we'll get a little bit more of a taste of what that relationship is. But I was excited to see Lalo. I knew he was coming this season. They cast a guy who, when you look at pictures, you go, oh, I don't know that I've seen him before. He might be good. But I thought his charisma and his confidence made him something different. You know, he's not Tuco. He's not Hector. He's not Gus. Right. Um, And I think they know, oh, let's not forget, we can create another new character for audiences, that this stuff that refers to Breaking Bad is fun. But let's give Gus somebody to butt heads with. Let's give Nacho somebody to butt heads with. 
there's a lot of potential there. He's kind of like annoyingly likable. Right. He almost seems like he's the, he's he's like this the principal, you know, who 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 comes in and gives a speech on his first day, and it's it sounds like well this guy's going to be great, you know, or the new boss who comes in and is like able to sound like this is going to be awesome. Trust me, it's only going to get better from here. But you can tell that like no, this person has plans, and, right? And and you don't want to run afoul of their plans. Well, I hadn't thought that much about it, but when you brought it up just a few minutes ago, I thought, um, gosh, that really does seem like uh, they could very well be uh, working on a plan to to show us exactly what that story is, the not just uh, who these the characters are, but exactly what. Uh, Jimmy was talking about, you know, when he said it wasn't me, it was that they have decided what it is, you know, and so they may show us uh, this uh, bad deed, whatever happens uh, in this story, wherein uh, uh, it could lead to Jimmy saying that when he gets when he gets nabbed, or Saul, as the case will be. Well, I mean, at least why Jimmy knows who Lalo is. Um, and and why he would connect Nacho to him. You know, there has to be some story that gets him to that point. Right. Why would he know the name of this guy? Right. Um, so anyway, th- this clearly seems like the long game because we've just been introduced to Lalo. And and for a casual viewer who hasn't parsed all these crazy little factoids and references, this would be an introduction of a new character. And I think as that, it, is, it was successful. Uh, and I think it was successful for me as far as going like, oh, who is Lalo going to be? Is it going to feel like a, a new energy or is it going to feel like just another another mean man? And this was, you know, like I could see this character turning into something. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's exciting. Yeah, that was cool. Hopefully in the next couple episodes, we're going to see some some fireworks there. And if there's any part of the show that really can have death around the corner, that's the one. Right. However, death might be around the corner for... A lovable German engineer slash construction guy. I really, really, I told you last week that I was worried about Werner, and now I'm extremely worried about Werner. <laughs> yeah, they they made some progress on that story. Definitely Werner, who, who did not seem in danger before, does now because he had to uh, get lectured by Mike. I don't think he would mess up again in that way, but maybe he'll mess up in some other way. And certainly Kai's staying on thin ice. And certainly their overboss, Gus, is the kind of guy who would say, you know, let's get rid of these guys instead of just sending them home. Uh, we've got to kill them or something, you would think. So it's it's worrisome for those characters. I mean, we've, we've assumed Kai is marked for death the whole time when he was introduced. It seemed like they're introducing a character who can die. Right. So it's clever to maybe subvert that by saying, what if Werner is the one who's the bigger liability in terms of what Gus and Mike are really wanting? Yeah, yeah. You know, they've done too much with like setting him up as lovable and too much with setting him up as as his, his family and he misses them. I mean, he's just the guy who it would be the saddest if Mike had to say, I warned you, I told you, um, I don't like doing this. And then suddenly, bam, Mike is a different person now because he's had to do that. Yeah, that seems like the thing you would think is coming. Of course, they love to set you up for things and then go sideways. But uh, that's that's how it's looking right now. See, I would say the sideways turn is already that Werner turns out to be the sloppier person. Yeah, right. That could very well be it, especially if Kai turns out to be all right. And, and if he 
if he survives all this. But it's still, it was sad for me to see that friendship curdle into something. And it's just sad anytime you're reminded of how hard a character is that you like. And Mike is hard. And, and, and he had real hardness towards Werner in this episode. And you see that there's a subtextual conversation going on between him and Gus about whether Werner should be allowed to live. Like, that's, that was happening in between the lines of that conversation. Yeah. And that's sad and scary. Like, you know, I, I got to say, I felt bad for Gail. I'm, I'm all prepared right now to feel bad for Werner. A reason to be scared for Werner, if, if, if my little storyline that I just spun there, if that is a prediction of sorts and not just the obvious connecting of dots, I, I guess I could say maybe our, our predictions, we should feel emboldened just as a show. And you as a person should feel emboldened right now about predictions in general, because you had a pretty strong... Very close, very, I mean, your prediction was was right on. That there would be some attempt to forge letters that were intended to inflate Huell's role in society and what a crime it would be to send this guy away. And um, I I mean, that's, I don't know if you had the sort of goosebumps that you normally have when the show is firing on all pistons, but a little added goose to it this time because because you were going, oh, wow, it looks like, you know, Jimmy's on that bus and changing his hand position and picking different pens and trying to write notes from different people. And I was like, oh man, Chris's prediction is right. And I started to see how it would work. Well, it's always fun to be like, I told you so, but I didn't feel that much pride in it because to me, it seemed pretty clear that that's the kind of thing that it would have to be. But I couldn't picture the details of it. Like I thought these would have to be letters to the uh, to the court of a sort that would be, that would come into the trial, not just that they would uh, clog up the the judge's mailbox and annoy him with, you know, and annoy him with the idea that this whole congregation of of people is going to be sitting in his courtroom and stuff, you know. So I didn't quite have the, uh, the details of, of, of the nature of it in mind. I I pictured that it had to, you know, just be from some children thanking Huell from saving them from a fire or something. But uh, no, it was, it was not quite that. But it worked great. I loved the judge and and his reaction to all these letters coming in and 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 comparing Huel to Santa Claus. Well, I mean, the reference to Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street was was obvious. Right, right. When you when you have a judge with a bunch of letters is being dumped on his desk and he's complaining about it. Right. Yeah. I guess you have to bring it up. Right. When they go in there and he's just beside himself. He's so mad about this, and 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 you see it's working. Right. And what I like about it is when you have. You have the Kim side of that, where she's kind of like smirking behind her stone face because she can see that it's working. And then you have Suzanne Erickson, the uh, ADA, who, despite being the the mark in this case, she gets to be that fun kind of mark yeah. where you know they're smart and you can see that some part of them is putting it together, but knows they've been, they can't get away, they can't get around it. Like some part of her, I feel like, felt like this is just too much. I can't believe this is happening. Yep. But as she talked to the people on the phone, that actress brought a real energy to those conversations where you could see that maybe her heart was being warmed a little bit, like yeah. that it was actually working on her in addition to her thinking, how in the hell is this actually blowing up in my face? Right. I loved that the end result of this was just seeing how much how much uh, scams pull Kim's trigger. Yeah. Yeah. She loved it. I mean, she loved it maybe more than Jimmy did. You know, he thought of it as like, we're doing something risky, um, but it's important. And she was really like, this is awesome. This is so fun, you know? Right. And he's ready to tell her, we'll never do it again. I promise. I know that's not what we do. But, uh, 
But that's that's after the fact. Let's talk about the the uh, scheme itself. The best part when when uh, Erickson is calling, making the calls, uh, coming into the the uh, nail salon, and uh, the great performances by uh, uh, the uh, makeup girl uh, and Jimmy uh, receiving the calls. That was so much fun, and uh, she's been taking improv classes. <laughs> right, right, and there was the website uh, that they've set up with the donations that come in whenever they push the button, and there was a real number on the on the on the website. By the way, the way this show likes to do from time to time, where you you see a, a phone number on the screen, you can call it, and uh, uh, it was the number for the church, and uh, uh, and they had a, a an outgoing message. I called it, and they had an, an outgoing message from uh, from the pastor that that Jimmy plays. So that was fun. Um, and I love the, uh, whiteboard. I don't know if you, that's a good, you got to pause it to read it joke, you know? Uh, and sometimes those are annoying to me that they make me pause, but it was fun to see his, his, his notes to self about, uh, the pronunciations of Cushada and, and Babineau and, uh, uh, and just saying, keep it simple and, and so on. You could still worry, I think, cause Erickson was so, uh, so determined to get to the bottom of this that it still seems like there's a possibility if they wanted to on the next episode or the next for them to say, oh, okay, here's where she figured out what they did uh, and have it all come back. But they seem to close it up like we're like we're done with that. You end the episode with this possibility that maybe Kim becomes Saul Goodman's silent partner. Yeah, that was a bombshell. That was the biggest thing in the episode. Is seeing how well we can let's let's get to that. First thing, Kim is at Mesa Verde. She agrees with Paige that Kevin's plan is unfeasible. You know, you kind of feel like well, she might have decided if she was really into working for them. I've got you covered. I can go back and change all these things and make them let us do what we want. But instead, she says no. Let's let's not press that. And uh, and then she goes and looks at. Uh, the uh, cork from the tequila bottle, and I have to uh, shout out to my girlfriend, Rachel, for uh, recognizing what that was. I was like, why is she pulling this peculiar object that I don't know what it is and fondling it? Yeah, the tequila topper that went back to the scam when she was Giselle. And, yes. And, and they referred to Giselle a couple of weeks ago when she and Jimmy were in that restaurant having the Moscow Mules, uh, which were a reference to that, too. So, yeah, they've, they've, they've reminded us of that recently. Right. You know, in this episode, we saw that she had the brilliant idea, and he had the the showmanship to put it over. Right, and they both were admiring that about each other. What if that becomes the the I've got a brand new roller skate, and you've got a brand new key of of Saul Goodman? You know, right. If they just gave us this little moment of seeing how fun she thinks it is to be bad, then that's great. But I I think that the way that I just theorized about, I think it's a I think that's an exciting possibility that allows the show to keep that somewhat lighter, somewhat more fun tone, and yet uh, still have the the turn into Saul that we know has to happen. Right. We don't know that she is not in his life throughout Breaking Bad. It's just something we've always thought was probably the case. And, uh, you know, we still don't know, but it could be that she is around and that they are great partners in, in crime. But, uh, I mean, it was... It was a bombshell that she says, let's do it again, uh, and cool because it's story progress, and I want to see things happen, and it's going to – who knows what it's what it's going to mean for them coming up. Uh, but it was kind of weirdly sudden for them to 
have her it just seemed like to me she might be feeling that but it's surprising that she would say that right out loud when she doesn't even have a case that we know of that it needs to be done for you know like if she was coming to him and saying let's do it again i've got another thing that needs finagling uh that to me would have felt a little more real than just saying let's do it again i don't even know what or when or why but it's certainly exciting to think of her being a, a a tricky lawyer like him and being into it. That's the point of that moment for me is that there is no immediate need. And she's just saying, I want that. I want to feel that, that high again of, of pulling something off. Right. And maybe even I want to feel that high of doing something like that with you. Like, I love this about you. I've figured out that I love this about you and I want to be with the version of you that does this kind of shit. Not the guy who sells cell phones. Right. She's finding in herself the thing that he has. She's realizing about herself. Boy, I really do love that. And I'm going to allow myself to be that person instead of uh, the careful person that I've been making myself be all this time. Even with my whole notion of, oh, she doesn't have to die or they don't have to have a complete falling out. I don't know that I ever thought she could be a driving force behind what he does as Saul. Right. And now I see that, and it's just such a cool way to pay off her character and keep her going. And also it creates a real question about what's going on when he skips town and goes to uh, Omaha. You know, it's like now Kim being out there, which we've always supposed might be part of the benefit of the Gene storyline, um, is that Kim could be out there somewhere. Yeah. Now that's even more interesting. If she's more involved, maybe that phone call on November 12th is, is something to do with her or something to do with getting a message to her. As I, I think that was my theory before, but now it makes a little bit more sense even that there would be some reason why she would be out there waiting instead of having completely left Jimmy behind or, or having written him off. Right. We'll see where all this goes. I think it could still go totally either way. But the most fun for the show, I think, would be it would be great if we get to spend a few episodes here with them in cahoots and and pulling uh, legal trickery. And there is one more little uh, reveal in this episode that's actually fairly significant is that he lets her know that he's hunting for an office for one now. Uh, so that very well could turn out to be the office uh, that we know. Right. I took that to be a sad little moment where she said, I thought you found a place. And he said, it turned out to be more than I needed. And he said that with this way that like, we know that in between him looking at that place and now he's made the decision that Kim wouldn't want to share an office with him. Right. Um, at, when he found that place, he was thinking of how to pitch it to her. Um, and and then he he's saw that she wouldn't take that from her office and just how things are going. And you can see at this episode, when it begins, Jimmy is aware that Kim is not too keen on him. And I, I wonder if, in retrospect, if that was her being focused on the task at hand and that she suddenly had this explosion of emotion towards him when it had been pulled off and it worked. But until then, she was stony, you know. Um, I wonder if that was going on or if she actually had sort of cooled off towards him when it looked like, you fuck up, I can't believe you did this. And then now that she's having this adrenaline rush of this thing happening, she she actually feels differently. I don't know which is more accurate, but I do think that Jimmy, well, I was feeling that sad feeling he was having throughout this episode of it's somehow gone bad and I don't think I can do anything about it. We even saw in one kind of touching scene that Miss Nguyen uh, cares at least a little bit about Jimmy. Uh, she she tried to give him some you know very generic advice. But right. that, that kind of generic advice that has a universal truth to it, that like you should do whatever you can to let the person know, um, you know, that you, you, you want them in your life. Right. That was a good, a good beat to really let us know that he is clearly seeing 
well, we've grown apart, and she just knows I'm not the right type of guy, and it's it's not going to come back together. But no, he was wrong. Chris, now is the time where we push off from the shores of Better Call Saul into the uncharted region of a spinoff challenger. And as we said earlier, this spinoff challenger, which was chosen by a, a gadget that someone sent us, and I have to say, this might be the cleverest gadget in Gadgetville, because it gave us a really good selection, not just, I think, a, a very pertinent uh, suggestion in terms of the fact that it's a spinoff that was co-written, co-created by Vince Gilligan, who is, of course, you know, at the top of the Breaking Bad creative team. But it also was a more modern show, and I dare say, in some ways, a better show than some of these other th- things we've been watching. What did you think, in the broadest sense, uh, about The Lone Gunman, the X-Files spinoff from 2001? I liked it pretty darn well, for an episode anyway. I don't know that I would sign on to watch a whole bunch of it, but uh, compared to some of these other things, definitely better, and it had a lot more similarities with Better Call Saul, and uh, and so that was cool. They did more uh, filmmakery stuff like Better Call Saul does. Like they go to the gun range, and there's just some kooky business with where the camera goes for a moment there, uh, and that made me say, uh, it's filmmaking, you know? <laughs> and uh, let's see, another thing that stood out as similar was the uh, disassembling of the car cube. They... they uh, are taking apart this car and looking for uh, some evidence, and it's uh, uh, reminded me so much of Mike uh, uh, taking apart his entire car looking for that tracking device that time. Uh, and just the tone of it, it you know, uh, of uh, an unfolding thing. There, I don't know. There was just some, uh, uh, just a set of touches that made me, made me say, this is uh, ha- smacks of a little bit of the same universe. But certainly, when you have to tell a whole story in an hour and get all in and out uh compared to better call saul it was uh, action-packed because you've got thing after thing happening and resolving and uh so in some ways it was it was more dynamic this style of storytelling requires a much brisker pace which which can kind of hurt the drama and hurt the character stuff on a on a certain level mm-hmm. but it can also make you feel that um, you know, when, when that episode is over, you're kind of free from it. You're not going like, oh my gosh, I want to see the next one right now. You're kind of like, I got my fill of that, and I could come back in a week and watch another one. Right, and like you were on a, on a wild ride. Also, there's a sense of a snarky, kind of snappy, post-Coen Brothers noir style of storytelling that this world was kind of edging into. And I wonder how much of that is Vince Gilligan or just the school of writing that he came up in because he was a producer and a writer on X-Files all along. So when he moved over to mm. kind of be one of the guys spearheading the uh, Lone Gunman spinoff, he, he wrote two or three episodes, you know, and was heavily involved in that uh-huh. spinoff. So I think you can uh-huh. see the way that that franchising of the Lone Gunman is, is not too different at all from the way that Saul Goodman is a, is a franchise possibility from Breaking Bad. It's a, it's a, it's like, oh, yeah, we always liked these characters when they popped up. I remember at the time being a kind of casual to, to interested um, 
uh, uh, X-Files fan. I did enjoy the episodes with the lone gunman on it because I was at the time kind of an unexplained and, and, and conspiracy theory buff. I don't know that I ever believed that stuff, but I always found it fascinating. I think you shared that fascination. I think we used to talk about it a lot. Yeah. And so the lone gunman to me were, it was fun to see characters on a show that were nerdy in a way that represented a little bit like real nerds. Like they were, they weren't quite the revenge of the nerds trope, but there was something more specific about the three different guys. Right. The way that they were coming at it from the different approaches. One guy's more corporate and kind of like a clean living guy. One guy seems like more of an old hippie and the other guy seemed like much more of kind of in that day, sort of the concept of the paranoid hacker. Right. Saul comes on Breaking Bad. You feel like this is going to be a fun scene. I feel like the lone gunmen were that in a lot of ways on the X-Files. Right. I like that kind of character, but I don't think that I was um, uh, keeping close enough track of X-Files to see many of the Lone Gunman episodes before this show came on. So I didn't know too well what all they had done with them. Uh, and then they did this show and maybe I just watched, you know, one or two randomly out of the season. So uh, I, I didn't uh, have that, that close understanding of what their deal was. But uh, you could see that they seemed like possibly likable enough characters to, you know, it seemed like a good idea to be like, oh, let's take these nerdy characters and make them the focus. But I think it was kind of good enough for everyone to agree, yeah, I'll watch that. Let's check it out. But not so good that you would stick with it for more than those 13 episodes. Like all the people just kind of fell away after seeing a few of them and went like, "Uh, yeah, I, I get it. I watched the first one when it came out, this one that we watched for this episode. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I watched a second one. I mean, I, I was interested in the notion of it, kind of the arc you just described. I was like, oh, that sounds kind of neat. I, I could totally see that being one of the more interesting things to spin off from the X-Files and a different show. You could see how it would deal more with government conspiracies and that kind of stuff and less with paranormal. And I just, I wasn't as engaged as I could have been. And maybe if it had been great and unquestionably so, it would have been really watchable to me then. But um, I think now it seems more watchable because it is a sort of procedural or formula-based show with a little bit of extra stuff injected in it. I think it's very dated. It's interesting to see how something from 2001 can seem very 2001. Um, mm-hmm. There were certain lines just like about cross-dressing and, and uh, uh, crack pipes and, I mean, things like that that just feel like very 2001 references that now you would only have a character saying certain things if you wanted to say this this person's a jerk, you know. Um, but I think that's always going to be the case with looking back almost 20 years. Yeah. And also another 2001 thing is is the way that they try to steal this chip at the beginning. They come down on this harness through the ceiling, which I, surely Mission Impossible had just been out not too long before that, right? Like a few years, right. That may have been an old reference at that time, but it was still relatively recent. But it was still a reference where they're like, look how funny it is to do that thing with a quirky little older guy with big glasses on. Right. Uh, but that was another thing that felt very uh, better call salt to me, though, because it's a caper. You know, you start out with like, oh, what's, look what these people are trying to pull. It's But it's like the compressed version of that, the condensed uh, version of that, where you don't really have time to 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 understand the mechanics of what they're doing. Right. After being questioned why they're set free, it still seems like they broke into this organization, whether they stole the chip or not. <laughs> but they're best they're bested in in stealing the chip by this other whatever you want to call her operative, um, who is I believe a fourth or fifth lead on this show in the sense of being you know sometimes a friend, sometimes a foe. Right. She has a storyline that at the end of the. 
13 episode season that was it for the lone gunman i believe it ends with a cliffhanger and then is resolved in an x-files episode which i did watch that later x-files episode not having watched the rest of lone gunman um but there's there's an episode late in the x-files run oh. where the lone gunman spoiler alert anyone that's listening where they die um they get exposed to some virus and that involves wrapping up the plot line of uh eva del harlow who is right their sort of frenemy and in fact, that episode was written by Vince Gilligan, that late episode of The X-Files, called Jump the Shark. David Duchovny couldn't be in the episode because he was directing an episode, and he was prepping the one he was directing. And so they had to create an episode that didn't use him. Mm-hmm. And they created this idea of, let's wrap up the Lone Gunman series cliffhanger. Let's take one episode of X-Files and kind of let it be a, what, what's the opposite of a backdoor pilot? It's a backdoor finale yeah. for the Lone Gunman. Actually, I saw a reference on uh, something I was reading about how the recent X-Files did do a Lone Gunman thing. Did you see that? One of them uh, had his consciousness uploaded to some server right. that then is a character in a new X-Files episode from last year. Right. Uh, Langley? Is he the... Yeah. Ringo Langley. Ringo Langley. Uh, yeah, he he's the one, I believe, who was up- uploaded to the to the server and became a character. Yeah, no, I think that's what I read. But yeah, so we sh- we haven't even mentioned who they are. Byers is the kind of corporate, more 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 straight laced of the three of them, and uh, and Froicky is the nebishy uh, holdover from the '60s, and uh, the hacker who at the time was supposed to be in his 30s, but now he plays a little bit older than that to me. Maybe because man children have continued to stay the same. Mm-hmm. But uh, Langley was the uh, was the kind of more modern version of the hacker at that point. But they have a little rag that they put out called the Lone Gunman, and it is a paper that reports the truth, you know, in quotes, I guess, about a lot of conspiracies that they that they are hip to. I don't know if they actually print some stuff that's just utter garbage and some stuff that's true. But I did think it was interesting that when they're talking about their numbers, they have like 2000 plus subscribers and it's meant to sound like a really small number. And I just want to say as a podcaster, I would love to have uh, the Lone Gunman numbers uh, for this show. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So what did you think of the actual story of the episode? There's one huge thing that happens in it that uh, let's remember this show came out in March of 2001, March of 2001. That's an important thing to remember because this show has a storyline where an evil entity has taken over a passenger plane and is going to use it as a bomb of sorts by crashing it into the World Trade Center in New York. Right. And this is six months before 9-11. In this episode, World Trade Center stood in for, oh my gosh, we can't let that happen. Yeah. But it didn't have this resonance. It was wild that they had this story six months before. And not only was it the story of somebody using a plane to crash into the World Trade Center, but it was the story that conspiracy theorists after 9-11 think, which is that a faction of the government decided to crash a plane into the World Trade Center and make it look like... Uh, foreign terrorists did it so that they can start new wars. So they were being double prescient. And and on top of that, it's a show about conspiracy theorists. And uh, and this thing came to pass. So it's just wild. But it's crazy to me that I hadn't heard about it because, you know, you see clips uh, online like like ooh, look at these three frames from Back to the Future and how they seem to be showing the World Trade Center upside down. That shows that someone secretly knew that 9-11 was going to happen. Well, that's nothing compared to this, which lays out the whole idea and turns it into an adventure story where you watch the plane approach the building closer and closer and closer, and then they just barely manage to save the day in time. But it's extremely intense 
But I, I wondered, well, you know, one explanation could be uh, that bin Laden got the idea from this show. You know, maybe he was not sure what he's doing. He's having some pilots trained, and then he saw this episode of this show and said, hey, that's that's a pretty snappy thing to do. Let's do that. Let's just run the plane right into a, the World Trade Center. Um, or, uh, I mean, uh, the other thing, though, I guess, is that, yeah, a lot of conspiracy theorists seem to think that there are clues in entertainment about what the secret powers that be are really up to. But I'm always confused about why those clues would be there. I guess you have to have you have to have the Illuminati or the secret powers that be who are controlling the world and who are orchestrating 9/11 to happen. And then you have to have some other Illuminati or powers that be, some team too who knows about that and wants to let the public know about it but only through clues instead of just telling them. They want them to figure it out years later that someone knew. And also, if they were against it, why didn't they just stop the first Illuminati guys instead of, like, we're going to put out clues to the general public in a way where they could maybe figure it out years later? The person who's actually going to look for those clues and believe that that shit is there is already kind of... They've already their minds made up about about uh, the world containing these conspiracies, you know. And I don't want to be such a non conspiracy buff that I doubt every conspiracy. But my whole thing has always been, I just don't have faith in human organization skills. I don't think people keep secrets as well. I just think that things of the, and I'm not saying it has never happened. And I'm not being naive and Pollyanna ish about what government would do and things that they would sign off on. And there have been atrocities that have been committed with the full support of government. Certainly, it seems like an amazing coincidence no matter what you think. But the thing is that people who have a certain mindset don't believe in amazing coincidences. They cannot believe that it's humanly possible for one person to say, I've got an idea for our TV show that's about hackers. Let's have them hack an airplane and try to send it into uh, uh, the World Trade Center Meanwhile, coincidentally, some real terrorists are saying, let's hijack some planes and fly them into the, into the two towers. They just can't believe there would be such a coincidence. But I can believe that, that you know, it's probably a coincidence or that maybe, I, you know, I, I don't doubt that maybe they were planning just to fly into the Pentagon and then they saw this uh, episode of The Lone Gunman and said, you know, that's a good idea. So yeah, this episode was in the ether. It was, it, was, it was out in the world for someone to consume it. So the idea was out there. Yeah. And it could be seen, I guess, by that measure, a really dangerous idea for a for a piece of entertainment to unleash on the world, which suddenly makes you think about like creative responsibility. I've always thought about that. Like, do bad people get ideas for movies, even though I don't think that watching violent movies makes you violent or whatever? You know, I don't think that is the case. But if you are a person who's got these mental tendencies we're talking about. Are you not maybe looking at a movie and saying that is a signal to me, an idea to me, something that I can use? So yeah, that's kind of horrifying if you really think about it. Definitely. Like I said, it totally shows that this is pre 9-11 because the way they deal with it is like, oh, crisis averted. We didn't crash the plane into the World Trade Center. That thing that got introduced in the last 10 minutes of this 45 minute show um, uh, is done now. Yes, I am the king. Numero uno, baby. Mm Mm-mm. 
find something? Yeah, I wound up in some government think tank's upload directory. Here's your scenarios, ladies. These look like counterterrorism scenarios. And the other thing that was very of its time was that in 2001, they were still doing everything they could to make scenes where people are like looking at computer monitors and talking nonsense about passcodes and downloading files and being scanned and tracked. There was, there was a scene that did everything they could to make it exciting. The three lone gunmen who are all nerds and, and because they're supposed to be the heroes of this world, they have to bring in an even more cartoonish nerd to be their nerdy friend. And he comes in and he's doing some hacking for them in between like pushing his glasses up his nose and making sucks noises, you know, because he's a nerd. <laughs> Download it. Uh-oh. Ixnay on the download day. What is it? Bogey. We've been spotted. Sir, we've got an intruder. I'm tracing. They're running some real-time intrusion detection. Somebody knows we're in. We should ditch. Keep downloading. These guys are murderers, buyers. Give it some thought, man. Back then, they were really trying to like show a close-up of a progress bar and get you going, yeah, yeah, man, this is tense, this is crazy. Hacking is cool, and it's exciting, and it's a story point when you watch someone hacking. Come on board, scanning for vitals. I'm bailing, they're scanning our file system! Need that file. But it worked pretty well. I mean, they, they had me somewhat on the edge of my seat. Oh, they, oh, is the progress bar going to get over there in time? Ooh, but it's definitely of its time. They'll be busted through our door. Keep downloading. Froggy, we almost had it. We almost had our asses fried. My father died for that file. Exactly. Use your head. The conspiracy theorist is a fun personality to have in drama. Like so many stories that are good depend on a conspiracy at the root of them. And yet I think it's almost an unhealthy obsession to have to say that you're going to depict this twisted world where everything has a reason and everything's connected. Right. Definitely when you, yeah, if you're going to have a story about a lot of conspiracy theorists, then yeah, you are sort of advocating. uh, This is one way of thinking that's interesting to uh, look into. You're, you know. You're not necessarily saying it's great, but just the fact that you're spending time on it is uh, is letting people, uh, uh, you know, hang out with it and and uh, enjoy some time in it and see if they like it. I mean, do you share my compunction about that? That it almost seems like a crazy solution to a simple problem sometimes that people can tie themselves in knots trying to figure out what it all means when really life is much more terrifyingly random than that oh yeah definitely it's a it's a bad uh it's a really weird rabbit hole to get into and of course it's important to try and uncover things and figure things out because you may very well uncover real things and figure out some real things but it's kind of like a lot of conspiracy theorists go as far as getting some really cool ideas about how all of this stuff may have been put together by secret machinations and then they stop before they actually do the investigations that could prove any of it. You know, before they can say, hey, I just proved that this was a conspiracy, they say, and this other thing is also a conspiracy, and I'm not going to spend the time to prove that either. And so now you've got 10,000 unproven claims uh, and only a few proven stories, and what do you do with that? All that does is, is darken your worldview and make you feel like Everyone is out to get people, and everyone is pulling secret schemes all the time, even though you don't have evidence that they really are for most of them. 
And it's it's a weird thing too because the conspiracy theorist seems so smart because they're the one who is seeing through things and seeing the secret hidden level above what most of us think of. But they're actually not necessarily that smart at all because they're the ones who are believing something without enough evidence. And usually it's a lot of it's a lot of taking things as evidence that aren't evidence that that is not evidence where you know if i make a big long list of compelling sounding arguments that does seem like evidence but it's not and so you can get excited about reading this whole long list but you don't end up with an actual news story where we exposed someone for doing something. I mean, we all are guilty of confirmation bias, you know, as we proceed in the world with our thoughts and theories and we receive information and, and like we all have our own way of categorizing things that flatters our worldview. Um, so if you have a conspiracy theory in your mind and you're thinking this is how the universe works or this is this is the truth that people don't see you can look for signs of it and and there's that that whole that's what the, i mean I, I mentioned this earlier but that whole that's what they want you to think part of it kicks in and if you've ever tried to talk to somebody who devoutly believes some complicated conspiracy and if you have sort of reasonable objections to some of the assertions they make that are that are you know maybe physically possible through some explanation that they have but it just feels like such a confluence of events and such a crazy chain that when you try to introduce, or that could have just been the way it happened, and now you're trying to impose some kind of order. It's almost like a dream, and you're trying to turn it into a story, and it was just a bunch of things that, that went through your head, you know? Right. Sometimes sometimes life is just a bunch of things that happened, and so we are always looking back and trying to make sense of it and turn it into a story. Everybody does that. But the conspiracy theorist does that with an eye towards a particular interesting story that they really want to be true in a way, maybe because they've invested so much in it, maybe because they really do believe it. There's this tangled story that has so many points that could be disputed and are worth investigating, but the person who's spewing all this stuff at you is just, they're so convinced, and because there's hints and clues and allegations and things to support that idea, there's no reason for them to investigate the little points because they have such a gut feeling about what the truth is. Right. And the whole thing is really the story of them trying to find the thing that supports their truth. You know, it's not really based on curiosity about what's going on. It's there to like to support a mindset. Right. And it's very difficult to talk a conspiracy theorist out of something that is so complicated without getting into it. You have to get into it because they're like, here are the 75 reasons that it's a conspiracy. And so for you to say, no, it's not, you have to go to each of those reasons and research it and so now the only way to to talk them out of it is that you have to become uh, an expert who has spent a thousand hours on their crazy idea. The sad truth is that none of this may mean anything. And I do think conspiracy theories are a way of almost supplanting religion in your head. It's a way to explain things. It's a way to say that it all matters, that it all has a story behind it. And I just... Uh, you know, maybe it says something about me that I just don't think there is, that I'm ready to embrace the, the, the universe without meaning. Yeah, there's a lot of random chaos and a lot of disconnected things and a lot of people doing things just in their own self-interest without a group of secret co-conspirators. And uh, so, yeah, you really don't need the big conspiracies to make most of the things happen. But let's uh, wrap up this episode. The... Um the big question is, how does the lone gunman stack up to Better Call Saul? 
Uh, it stacks up a lot better than most of these spinoffs we've done, but um, just the fact that I don't find the lone gunmen themselves uh, quite so likable as Saul, um, compa- uh, uh, in addition to the uh, really annoying rock score, means it's really not close to being as good as Better Call Saul. I, I did want to mention one connection. These guys did have an episode that had Morris Fletcher on it, which is an, an, a character from the X-Files who was, I think, the person who was in charge of keeping Area 51 secret hmm. for the government. And that character is played by Michael McKean. Oh. There was an episode of X-Files that was another one of the kind of fun offshoot episodes where uh, Mulder and Michael McKean switch brains oh, and so yeah. you've got fox Mulder in morris fletcher's body going around trying to improve things for his side of things and then you've got you know morris fletcher this kind of uh button down uh suit you know experiencing a little bit of of Mulder's existence right i had forgotten all about that that's pretty cool hot talk hot talk hot talk